0: but you did really well. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I'm Brendan. Um, Most of you know me. Those who are visiting, a special welcome. Glad to see you here. Um, And it's my pleasure to be leading you in the the examination of God's word this evening. Uh, I don't think we have any notices, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll get right into it. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to learn from it. Uh, to come closer to you through what you've given us. You've made the way clear so that we can approach you through what you've given us here. So we ask that you open our hearts to your word and open up your word to our hearts. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. We're coming to the end in our series on Romans. We're now seeing the, uh, the outworking of everything Paul's talked about beforehand, about his uh, the practice of the theology he's spoken of in the earlier chapters. And this passage is consumed in the idea of sacrifice. And so we'll see a lot of that coming up as we move on ahead. But first I want to tell you a short, not particularly happy story. In 2008, Alison Hume, a 44-year-old mother of two, fell 60 feet down an abandoned mine shaft in Galston, Scotland. An 18-strong rescue crew arrived to begin the heroics of potentially drawing her up out of that darkness to treat her bones and other injuries. But the senior officer on site, the senior rescue worker, had said that a recent memo had banned the use of rope for rescuing members of the public. It had banned the use of rope equipment for rescuing members of the public. It was only allowed to be used to rescue fellow firefighters. Using rope to rescue members of the public was reserved for the special mountain rescue crews, and only they were allowed to do it. And those guys were few and far between, so they needed to wait for them. After some five hours in the cold darkness, Alison Hume died in compliance with this memo. The nature of servanthood is sacrifice. Any act of servanthood that we do, we do for another person. And when we do that, we do a kind of a mental weighing up of cost and benefit. And now I want to explain that carefully because I was challenged on that this morning. I don't mean anyone sits down with a pencil and paper before they think of a good act they're going to do someone and carefully decides, how will this work out for me? How will this work out for them? But each of us, we make a decision... We run through in our head, is this actually going to benefit that person? How much should I sacrifice? None of us liquidate everything we own and give it away because we feel like that's actually not the truest way for us to serve. We have to measure the cost and the benefit. And this is a perfectly natural instinct. For all the selfishness that there is in man, there is also a small allotment of selflessness that God has given them. No matter how far you go from the civilization that we have come to know, you will find that most social groups, most people, have, for example, a respect for the groups of the elderly in their community. This comes from an idea that maybe they recognize that someday they will be elderly and they would like to be respected and cared for as a cost and a benefit. Christ's command is that we live as servants to one another. Now, this was not a command to disregard the cost of any selfless serving sacrifice. It was to love your neighbor as yourself. To start seeing an act of kindness that only benefits someone else as somehow cosmically beneficial to you as well. But the horrible power of the world is that it is always been able to apply just a little pressure to the cost side of that equation and cause people to become very cold and very blind to one another's suffering. How easily the cost side of that scale can escalate for someone who doesn't see serving others as somehow serving themselves. In 2008, Alison Hume died because 18 Scottish rescue workers weighed the cost and benefit of trying to save her from the situation she was in, and the cost, the risk of possibly being fired for violating protocol, or being held to account for not using the right equipment, that cost was not worth the potential benefit of saving her life. Defiance of protocol was not a sacrifice they were willing to make. It's very easy for our natural, tiny allotment of selflessness to be overwhelmed and outweighed. How little pressure needs to be placed on that cost side of the scale, if obedience to the golden rule, the do unto others rule, is not on the benefit side also. And this passage, which makes up the most of Romans 15, the bulk of Romans 15, is about sacrifice. Sacrifice as the heart of servanthood and true servanthood as the art of self-sacrifice. Paul's words here can be broken down into three great sections. Verse 8 to 13, which show Christ came as a sacrificial servant to the Jews that the Gentiles might benefit. Verse 14 through 22 is about Paul's sacrifice, about him giving up any ease and glory in his own life so that he could be that instrument that God would use to bring the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles all throughout the ancient world. And verse 23 to 33 contains Paul's encouragement to the Roman church to be willing to sacrifice in kind, to sacrificially, materially be prepared to extend God's kingdom in the world they were in. There's a continuity here. The ultimate servant sacrifice begins with Jesus, to the Jews, from the Jews to the Gentile believers, and back again from the Gentile believers to more Gentiles and to the Jewish ones, from believer to believer, servants submitting willingly to one another under God's law. Because service to one another is, as far as God is concerned, service to God. And service to God is the finest use of one's life and one's blessings. So let's take a closer look at verses eight through 13, and I'll show you what I mean. Paul begins here in verse 8. He says, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and, moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Then Paul gives these four Old Testament verses, these four Old Testament little snippets, to back up his claim. But notice first the two things which Paul says Christ became a servant of the Jews to accomplish. In verse 8 he says he's become a servant that the promises made to the patriarchs might be fulfilled. And then secondly in verse 9 that the Gentiles might glorify God in his mercy. Something then for the Jews, something for the Gentiles. Everyone wins. Now remember, Paul is writing here to the Roman church, a church that has been experiencing some Jew-Gentile tension for some time in the Gentile capital of the world. Paul's point here is that it has always, always, throughout all of Scripture, been the intention and the work of God to proclaim his lordship and extend his blessing over the Gentiles through the Jews, and that he accomplished that through the work of Jesus Christ. Now I'm leaning into this point because sometimes we make the error of looking at scripture as if the Old Testament is kind of the Jew bit and the New Testament is kind of the Gentile bit. As if God was primarily interested in the Gentiles only after they had uh, only after the Jews had rejected Jesus. Like the Gentiles had caught the blessing that the Jews just weren't in range to grab like a backyard cricket rules arrangement one hand one bounce. Still out. Now, this is an easy mistake to make. We make it out of passages like Matthew 15, where Christ rewards a Canaanite woman for saying that even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table when she's saying that the Gentiles receive the blessing that has come for the Jews. Or in Luke 14, where Jesus tells a parable about a man who prepares a great feast and all his intended guests do not turn up, and so he invites in everyone, all the beggars, everyone off the street. Again, another picture of the blessing going out to those who weren't first targeted. Now, if we take passages like this purely literally without applying even a little interpretation, it looks like the Jews were unresponsive and the Gentiles just lucked out by being there. The Jews gave God lemons and he made lemonade. And that's where we are today. But it's the generosity of God, the completeness of his blessing, that is so full and provident that it can supply even the dogs and the beggars, everyone who God wants. That's what we're supposed to take away from these parables, not the offhanded manner in which that goodness and blessing is delivered. And Paul highlights here in Romans 15 how constantly God has prepared to enfold the Gentiles in his great blessing. Paul gives us a slice of Old Testament teaching, four verses in a row. Verse 9, 10, 11, 12. And these verses come from Second Samuel, Deuteronomy, Psalms, and Isaiah. You don't need to write these down, but you could if you want to investigate further. Now, I warn you, this is going to get a little bit technical, so kind of hang on with me here. I'm I'm trying to get to the depth of this point, and we will need to go a little bit into the Hebrew, but don't worry, we won't go too deep, because if we did, I'd be just as lost as anyone else. So the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is called the Tanakh. This is kind of a Hebrew acronym, like three letters that stand for three words, like AFL is Australian Football League. The Tanakh is... T-N-K, or Tav Nun Kaf, which might as well be the English letters T-N-K. So Tanakh makes sense phonetically. The T in this stands for Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible. That's the law, the teaching. One of these books, for example, is Deuteronomy. The N in Tanakh stands for Neviim. Now, Nevaim means prophets. Most of the books in the Bible from the time of Joshua right after Moses until the tail end prophets like Malachi those guys are part of the Nevi'im, the end part of the Tanakh and importantly broadly by Jesus time the Jews thought of the Nevi'im in two parts as prophets like for example Isaiah and the historical prophets like for example Samuel and the K in Tanakh, so T-N-K is for Ketuvim Now, Ketuvim means writings. Ketuvim contains the historical stuff, most notably the poetry and the wisdom stuff in the Old Testament. Psalms might come to mind. So when Paul flies through here and says this and again and again and again four times, he's taking a a sort of a rapid-fire tour of the Old Testament. He's touring all the Hebrew scripture and announcing that all along, all through the whole thing, God's intention has been to save the Gentiles. It wasn't an afterthought. All along, they were intended to receive his blessing. Now, we said Paul opened with two things that uh, Christ was to fulfill when he came to become a servant of the Jews, to fulfill the promise to the patriarchs, and then also that the Gentiles might glorify God in his mercy. But really, these two are the same thing, and I think that's what Paul is driving at. The blessing given to Abraham the first Hebrew, the first Jew, back when he's just Abram being called out of Babylon, back in Genesis 12, is this. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and all peoples will be blessed through you. Abram himself was a Gentile until God invented Hebrews, starting with him. And this first promise that he gives to the first Hebrew taking him out of the Gentile nation, the only people he's ever known, amounts to, I am a just God. I will treat all people fairly. You're not abandoning them. They will be blessed through you. Now, the final quote that Paul pulls out here is one from Isaiah, and he matches it with the blessing he gives in verse 13. Together, they look like this. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, One who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope, hope, hope. The root of Jesse, Christ. The root of Jesse, in him the Gentiles will have hope. May the God of hope fill you. And may you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. All members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in this business of giving hope to the Gentiles. This was the purpose of Christ's coming, to fulfill the servant responsibility of the nation of Israel so that all nations would be blessed through the Jews. And Paul sees himself as an extension of this servant responsibility. It's been passed To him, as a Jew, as a special minister of Jesus to the Gentiles, Paul recognizes his path. He's at a junction of history where God's blessing is just now pouring out in the most amazing way across the Gentile nations, as it had always intended to be. Now you would think Paul might be a little bit more bitter about this new role. This man was a Pharisee before he started doing this. That means he was wealthy and respected. Above that, he was safe, safe in a way that people in the ancient world rarely got to be. Now, we know that Paul spent three years in the desert being instructed by the Holy Spirit. If he had any resentment, he must have worked it out then because by the time we get to him, he's saying this in verse 17. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus... In my service to God, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. So that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it was written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. All his previous accomplishments up till now are nothing to him. They've been willingly sacrificed so he can work for this greater purpose. The wealth gone. Where did it go? We're not told. Either his family took away the credit card when he got onto this strange religious kick, or maybe he gave it all away. But we know he's relying on the charity of his fellow believers now. Any status among the Jews he had is gone. He's now routinely chased and beaten by the Jews who find him. And safety's well and truly out of the window. Did I mention the beatings? Not to mention that church tradition suggests that Paul will eventually meet his end on the earth after being executed in Rome. Any rational, civilized human would do the cost-benefit math on such a life and say that any path that ends in me, poor and hated and headless, can't possibly be worth the benefit. But Paul knows it is. He knows that he has been given this mantle of servant sacrifice from Christ to the Jews, now to be given to the Gentiles. He has a part to play in this continuing blessing. And the benefit is not just to him, but to the nations, and indeed also to Christ. So far from the cost being not worth the benefit, the benefit is so profound it's worth any cost. It's a display of the unnatural kindness and the, sacrif- the sacrificial servanthood in Jesus as lived out by someone who has received his grace and who lives according to it. It's from this platform that Paul makes his plea to the Gentiles for their part in this servant work in verse 23 to 24. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. He's worked so fervently planting churches in the Greek provinces that they're just about tapped out. He's planted all the churches he can conceive of planting there. The word of God is rolling through the east, changing hearts and changing the world as it goes. Now the west is in his sight, and Spain, as the far tip of the western edge of the Roman Empire is Paul's conviction. Paul's hope is that they, these Roman Christians will assist him. And this is not particularly subtle code language. Paul is a missionary. He needs mission backers. He needs a support network. He wants the Roman church to be his base of operations as he does this, as he goes into Spain. And just in case there's any concern that investing in Paul's mission might not have a benefit worth the cost, he tells about the churches he's come through and about their sacrificial giving going on to the Jerusalem church. Now, this has a little bit of historical background. We know the empire had been going through something of a famine at this time. Macedonia and Achaia are Greek provinces, part of the more fertile and famine-resistant parts of the ancient Roman empire. Jerusalem, as you might expect, is in one of the sandier, more famine-vulnerable parts of the empire. And Paul had gone to the Gentile churches to ask for an offering, a special offering to be taken up for the poor Christians in Jerusalem who were particularly suffering during this famine. Now, even if the Greek Christians weren't hit so hard by this crisis, they were still in crisis. It would be very easy not to give to even a good cause at this time. And the Jew Gentile tension was a two way street. The Jewish communities scattered throughout the empire had a habit of harassing and abusing the Christian mission efforts in their area. Now we can easily say, well it wasn't like they were giving to those Jews, they were giving to the Jewish church. That's easy for us to say because we have 2,000 years of Christian teaching telling us what really binds people together is faith in Christ. Racial tribalism, the divides that people put up between each other, has always been one of the strongest, ugliest forces in the world. And these churches had about 15 years to sort of get over the way the entire world had always thought about people groups and what actually tied them together. And then Paul asked them to dig deep into their already nearly empty pockets and give a special, substantial offering to a church made up of a very different people, a lot of which probably hated them. And they delivered. Verse 25 to 29. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So, after I have completed this task and have made sure that they will have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. Those Greek Christians made deep cuts to give this offering, and they were pleased to do it. Because, after all, it was Jewish Christians, like Paul, like the disciples, who were the first to bring the gospel to the Jews. I mean, to the Gentiles, from the Jews. This was the passing of this blessing from one group to another. Now, this is a material showing of gratitude for that risk taken. Sacrificial servanthood for sacrificial servanthood. Now, there's an entirely different discussion to be had about whether or not the modern Christian church has anything in common with or any debt to the modern Jews, the modern state of Israel. I certainly don't want to get anywhere near that minefield. Tonight, But in the context of Paul's words, there is a real meaningful debt for the Gentiles to the faithful Jews, those who were stewards of God's word. In Genesis, God told Abram, I will bless those who bless you. And Christ, the root of David, the true Israel, blessed the Gentiles and they were beholden to bless him back and bless the faithful Jewish followers back. Now, Paul goes on to ask the Romans to pray for him by Jesus through the Spirit to God, the whole trinity involved again in this prayer. And he asks, they pray for his safety as he takes this offering back to Jerusalem to a city full of people that used to respect and fear him but now hate and mock him. He asks that he is received favorably by the Lord's people that the Jewish Christians will graciously accept the offering and step out of that old tribalism like the Gentiles had when they had made the offering. He wants them to see this gift in the same light he's asking the Gentiles to give it, as a servant-hearted sacrifice from one body of God's believers to another. One ode in some way, as an example of the kind of generosity and love that the church is meant to be built on. Now I'm a big fan of Western civilization, I love the freedoms that we have in this country and countries like it. I try not to take for granted the fact that I can stand up here and preach freely without worrying that I'll be shut down by the powers that be for speaking the truth of the gospel. Or for that matter that I might be punished for the mistakes of my parents or my children or someone in my immediate circle. Our country, our civilized law, recognizes that people are individuals and that they can only be held responsible for their own actions. And they owe only those debts that they personally make. Legally, this is an excellent kind of freedom, and I thank God that we have it. But I'm afraid it gives rise to a particular way of thinking which can be harmful for our Christ-honoring ambitions. We often hear things like, supposedly motivational sayings like you only have one life make it count make sure you live it to the full march to the beat of your own drum this kind of individualism which is necessary for a free society to be legally free for its legal health but without christ's moral law to love one's neighbor to love one's neighbor as themselves this can make for a very selfish people it weighs down the cost side of the cost-benefit analysis we intrinsically do. If I only have one life to live, and I owe nothing to anyone but anyone nothing to anyone but the debts I make myself, then what possible benefit could there be for me sacrificing for someone else? It's the kind of thought that leaves 18 fire and rescue personnel standing at the top of a mine shaft, while a mother of two lies broken at the bottom of it. Slowly succumbing to hypothermia because the benefit of serving and saving her is not worth the possible cost of being fired or being held accountable. Now, if everyone really thought like this, then why would a man ever risk his life in combat for his country? Or why would a woman ever sacrifice a huge chunk of her life for raising and giving up her uh, time, her wealth, much of herself for her children. Now, the truth is that why would anyone do anything for anyone if we really thought like this? Really, for the majority of human history, everywhere except for the West, for the last 60 years or so, people didn't think of themselves as just the captain of their own ship, making their one life count, trying to live life to the fullest. Jews and Gentiles alike, people everywhere, saw, for example, their parents and those who came before them as part of a continuing line, not separate from them, but connected to them, people they owed something to. And that if they did their part right, then that line wouldn't end with them, it would stretch on to their kids. People understood that they owed something to those that prepared the way for them and that they were in turn obliged to prepare the way for those who would come after. This is the reason there is a commandment about honoring our parents and why so much of the old law is tied up in how parents deal with their children and how effectively they pass on their values and their religious responsibilities to them. A fine example is when Moses takes the Israelites into the desert, that whole generation that came out of came out of Egypt, dies there. And when a new generation, 40 years later, is raised up who have never known slavery in Egypt, when they arrive at the Promised Land, Moses turns around to them and says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that God brought you out of slavery. There is some real connection there, something really owed. The English word for this is legacy, and we don't use it much anymore but Christians have a legacy of sacrificial servanthood. Christ came, died, rose again to deliver believers from their sins. The carrying of that gospel is a legacy that went first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. It's been passed through the ages to us. And now we have this legacy of servanthood forevermore between individual brothers and sisters in the church, And corporately for the church out to those who don't yet know him who don't yet know our Savior and all he's done we bless because we have been blessed we have an obligation to those who came before us and to those who come after and once we grasp that the whole loving your neighbor as yourself thing stops being quite so mysterious the cost-benefit analysis starts to make sense. To benefit our brothers and sisters is to benefit ourselves. And to love one another really is the plan that God had for us all along. Let's pray. Father God, through Christ you've saved us, through Christ you've given us new life And through Christ, you've welcomed us into the blessing of Abraham. Help us to be Christ-like in our attitude to servanthood. May your spirit make us mindful and responsive to the legacy of evangelism and Christian service that we bear. And may our hearts be made tender to your conviction where you would ask us to sacrifice so that we can see the cost for what it is and the benefit of serving our neighbor in accordance with your commands as supreme above it all. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.